There's lots of different things that we can do together. Some will be successful, some won't. That's okay. But, you know, when we get it right, you get it right in a really big way. It's really meaningful and it's fun. You know, what's more lonely than like, you know, doing it all by yourself and waking up and like, oh, it's just me. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing serial entrepreneur and venture capitalist, Tony Conrad. Tony has co-founded and has been an early investor to a number of household names in the startup world, including About.me, which he sold to AOL, and the website creator, also known as WordPress. He's part of the founding team at True Ventures, which has also been early investors in some of the biggest names in startups, including Peloton, NineGag, and Blue Bottle Coffee, which was recently acquired by Nestle for over $800 million. Now, This is a longer than usual episode because Tony has had a pretty interesting life which you just can't condense into 30 minutes. Before the millions of dollars and the accolades came, Tony was born and raised in a very small farming town in Indiana that was not tech savvy at all. In fact, it was pretty rare to think you could even go to college where Tony was from, which is what makes him such an interesting person to interview. Tony went from being this kid who didn't come from much to later going on and becoming an executive who would travel the world and then later becoming what I call him the godfather of Silicon Valley. Okay, let's get into the action. So Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Philip. No problem. So Tony, when you are out and about, how do you introduce yourself to people? Uh, That's a great question. (laughs) Normally with my name. Uh, So I think that's a good place to start. Um, But, you know, if people are inquisitive and they want to know what I do and try to dig in a few layers deeper, I'll tell them that I'm an entrepreneur and also an investor. And, uh, you know, if we go deeper and deeper, I'll tell them that I've founded a few companies and I'm currently a partner and investing partner at True Ventures. Nice. Yes, you definitely did start a few a few companies. Um, so before we get into the companies that you started and True Ventures, um, I want to talk a little bit about early life. So what was it like growing up as Tony Conrad? So from uh, what I read, you, you grew up on a farm, is that correct? Well, I grew up in a farming community. And yeah, and um, all my friends were pretty hardcore farmers, <laughs> for sure. But it was a small community of about 5,000 people in the north uh, eastern part of the state of Indiana, where it's incredibly flat. And, um, you know, it's, it's quite boring in a lot of ways. Um, but a really simple life, people are incredibly earnest and and nice and the community could not have been more supportive. Um, and you know, I had no drama, so to speak, right. My parents were wonderful people and my sisters were, you know, are wonderful people. And, um, you know, the really, I think it's, you know, it's probably been one of the advantages I've had 
you know, as an adult. I think for a while I probably struggled with it. I thought it was a little bit of a disadvantage to be from where I, I grew up because we didn't, not very sophisticated, right? And, you know, the educational system is not not fantastic. And you don't have models in front of you or constructs in front of you that say, ah, you can be ambitious, ambitious or you can do this or that. But over time, I've come to realize that I had such an incredibly supportive community structure that it really just allowed me to kind of grow as a person and at my own pace and to find my own way, right? And, you know, I mean, I think from the very early stages of, of growing up there, I knew that I was different, um, you know, from most people. And that, you know, I was not, I remember having a very early age thinking, you know, I'm not going to be living here, you know, <laughs> when I'm an adult. Um, I don't, I don't know if that age was, you know, five or two or seven, but, you know, just, you know, like really early on, like getting out of a little bit, a little bit. Right. And, you know, but I think, you know, in hindsight, boy, a lot of advantages to the whole, the whole, uh, the whole system. So that is an insane upbringing, obviously growing up in a community of 5,000 people. I think personally, a life with no drama is always better than, I guess, the one that I currently live. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine what that was like. So then how did you end up from growing up in this, you know, farmer's town, this farm community of 5,000 people to, you know, going to college and working a corporate job? Well, you know, yeah, you know, college was an interesting, um, that was already kind of an interesting step, right? Because in my high school, you know, less than, I think less than a dozen kids went to college from my graduating class. And, you know, we were 125 students, right? So, you know, under 10% of the kids were were applying and going on. Um, So it wasn't obvious. And, uh, you know, there's an entrance exam that you have to take an SAT. and, And I didn't even know I didn't even know what that was, right? And I didn't, nobody prepped for it. Um, You know, we didn't like, you know, have consultants (laughs) being hired by our parents. Uh, And I didn't even know the dates that you had to take it, nor did I know that you had to take it, right? And so I found out about it on a Tuesday because one of the people in the school who doubled as a counselor, you know, um, for college placement, it said to me, you know, Hey Conrad, aren't you, you know, I think he knew I was a smart kid. Right. And it seemed like I was an ambitious kid and going to try to do something outside of that town. And he said to me, are, are you signed up for the exam? And I'm, I know what exam <laughs> he explained to me I had to take this. And so, uh, I signed up and took it, you know, four or five days later and, uh, obviously did well. Um, but then I just applied, to one school, which was the state school, Indiana University in Bloomington. And I went there and, um, you know, that was just such an eye-opening experience. I remember, you know, after being there a few weeks, um, I went back home. My home was like three, three and a half hours away. And I was, I was just so ashamed, you know, I mean, I, I dressed in a way that, you know, felt weird and didn't feel collegiate and preppy and all that stuff. And, you know, I just didn't know. I just didn't have the same kind of construct that a lot of other, um, you know, people might have had. And so 
um, you know, my parents were great. They were like, you know, <laughs> they didn't know either. Right. And they, 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 yeah, they, exactly. And so they, they, they took me, they took me to the store and, you know, in the city, Fort Wayne, which was about an hour away, a big city. And I, you know, I bought some preppy shirts and all that kind of stuff. And I went back and then, you know, I kind of, I kind of just worked my tail off in that first year. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to make sure I survived, right? <laughs> but do you ever attribute, I guess, the desire for success and, you know, achieving greatness to anything in particular from your upbringing? Because obviously growing up in that community, like you said, you know, less than 10% of people actually made it to college. So where did that come from? And it sounds like it wasn't kind of drilled into you by your parents. So where did that kind of desire come from? Well, I think as a, as, just as a human being, right? I think when you don't feel a natural fit, when something feels off, you know, it's bothersome. And you may not articulate it that way in the moment, but it's like, ah, you know, you're trying to figure out, you know, where does it feel right? And where does it fit? And so, you know, it drives you in a way. It's not this maniacal, you know, drive to be successful and, you know, have money and, all the things that can maybe come with, you know, with ambition, but it's like, you know, kind of a desire to, to fit in and to, to find your spot um, where it all feels, you know, feels like a nice warm cashmere blanket. Um, <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay. I'm here. <laughs> this, this feels right. You know, this feels interesting to me. So, you know, it didn't take long. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't hard. It was just, you know, I just remember those first few weeks, you know, it being a little bit tough when it like a light bulb went off, like, Oh, you know, not, you know, I'm kind of listening and I'm very observant. I'm not really, you know, uh, that certain, you know, like I look the role or, you know, like I look the part, so to speak. And it's such a shallow thing in hindsight. Right. But it was real to me in the moment. And, you know, I just remember that, that sense of, uh, you know, just feeling, def you know, a little deflated, you know, I'm here and like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't be here. Mm. So, you know, but yeah, I, I think all that stuff helps, um, for sure through college uh, i did and then you went into the corporate world working at denon yes honey milk drinks yes exactly <laughs> denon the small tiny milk so you were there for a really long time before i guess you went on your entrepreneurial journey so what was okay what was corporate tony like yeah that was actually uh a great experience. So corporate Tony was probably not that different from, you know, entrepreneur, founder, investor Tony in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the first years, couple of years I did, you know, hardcore, straight up product management, brand management, learned about P and L's, um, learned about marketing, um, you know, how to run a brand, right. How to launch a brand and how to interact with distributors and sales teams and general management and all that great stuff that you learn in that, in that vocation. Um, but after a, you know, a few years, I was invited to, uh, to move abroad and I ended up in France and um, in a short stint in Indian as well along the way, but ended up in France working and, you know, right away it was like, you know, it's kind of back to this notion of, you know, how, how do you fit, 
right into this. You know, it's a different culture, different language, and all that stuff. My French was not very good at the time, and um, and so you know, I just spent a lot of energy being entrepreneurial and figuring it out. And I think that's really kind of where I started to flourish. You know, it wasn't, I I don't, when I look at the body of work I was able to do in my four years of being there, you know, there's a few things that I think were, you know, interesting um, experiences. I did sales, uh, which allowed me or enabled me to speak a lot, you know, always being speaking for, you know, speaking French all the time. Um, and that was really kind of an achievement. But like, if you look at it from like a corporate perspective, well, you know, yeah, I did a good job as a salesperson, but like that, nothing outstanding, right? Nothing, <laughs> nothing except, well, I did some of the thing and I was doing it in a foreign language. Right. And so I think, you know, the organization was mature enough to understand, like, while there may not be these great results, the underlying performance to get the results that he's getting um, is actually quite impressive, right? And the trajectory is quite, you know, quite good. And so, for whatever reason, they believed in me, and they kept, they just kept giving me more and more responsibility. And you know, at the end of my uh, tenure in France, I got a job to run uh, corporate de- development for Southeast Asia. And um, so, my wife and I, we, we packed up and we moved to Jakarta, Indonesia. And uh, she was six and a half months pregnant. All right, so we we were six and a half months pregnant. She was doing the work, <laughs> um, but you know that once again was kind of like you know you're working in this corporate environment, but there was no company there. There was no structure there, right? I I, I woke up in the middle of the night on the second night we were there, and and uh, I said to my wife, "It was a little agitated." He's like, "I have no idea what I'm supposed to do." You know, I don't have any network. There's no, there's nothing here in place. I'm not sure what to do, how to go about doing this job. And so I ended up reaching out to some of our partners. I think Price Waterhouse was one of them and a couple of other partners that we had from a global perspective. And I just went to their office and it's like anything in life. You, you know, you make a connection and it enables you to make some more connections and you start to network. And so I learned a lot about networking, which helps you incredibly, uh, you know, so in the field that I'm in uh, today. And, uh, you know, I was off to the races. <laughs> yeah, no, and I guess that was probably, would you say that's your first taste of kind of entrepreneurialism, like moving to another country, having to start from a base? I guess... With- I do. I, I think when I... I think when I got to France, that, that really felt like I was being an entrepreneur, right? I felt very different um, from what everybody else was doing. And it felt, it felt good. You know, it felt scary as hell. Um, and, you know, it was dirt broke and all those things that come along with the change. But, but I felt, I just at the end of each day, I just kind of felt great, right? Like, I, you know, I'd just gotten through the day and I'd, you know, made it through another day and I learned a few more words and I felt a little bit more comfortable. And I don't know, it's just really, I think a lot of things are very similar when you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. Like 1% better every day is still success, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so you were at Dunning for eight years and then when did you decide, I mean, eight years is a long time. Um, when did it is, (laughs) (laughs) it's a long time to do anything. I don't know if I've done anything for eight years. Um, like, when did you decide it was time to kind of move on? 
Well, you know, I got to, well, uh, actually, <laughs> if you really want the truth, I got a death threat, um, uh, you know, while I, I was working there. So, you know, it was when you're buying and selling companies in a place like Indonesia in the, in the 90s, um, it could be quite challenging because, you know, they had a lot of elaborate shell company tax structures and things that you had to unwind in, in order to understand what you were going to pay to acquire the company, right? And or if you even wanted to, and so you had to really get into their details in a very sensitive way. And they, you know, they opened it all up to you. But you know, if you ended up not going through with the deal, they felt very vulnerable. And so at the end, I actually did get a, I really did get a legitimate death threat. So um, and uh, and so you know, I was already tired. I'd been there for four years. I'd been living abroad for you know nine years in total. And, you know, I had two children, um, I had a dog uh, that we had brought with us from France and I had a one and three year old and it was just time to go home, you know, and it, I just remember thinking like, you know, now's the moment. And, you know, outside of going back to New York and working in what would have felt like a corporate job versus kind of what I was doing, um, I thought this is the right moment for me to make a geographical decision and, you know, just to free myself from, you know, free myself from the shackles of like, you know, a job and just think strategically, like, where do I want to be? And, um, that wasn't hard, right? I, I knew that Silicon Valley was happening. I was using early Netscape browsers in order to be able to connect. I was longing for home you know, being living abroad, I was just anything I could connect back to the culture. Um, baseball games. I remember like, you know, it'd be like ball one. <laughs> and then you'd refresh and it would be like strike one, you know, <laughs> you know, but like I would do that. It seemed like I did that for hours. I probably did it for days. Um, but I, you know, I just, I, I knew that the web was I just you know I just knew like I don't think it takes a rocket scientist but there were a lot of doubters in the time but for me it was just like this is going to be amazing this is the place to go it was around 98 99 uh 1990 yeah 1997 you know I was yeah and then um I took it so so I came I moved to Silicon Valley but the other thing that I really I wanted to do kind of a reset on is that I had always, um, I'd always been excited about being a father. Right. And I had these two wonderful little boys and, you know, in the job I had in Indonesia, which really kind of grew in scope to include China and India and lots of different places. Um, I was just on an airplane all the time. I mean, every week I was just never home and it was, it was very demanding traveling. It's like, traveling from New York to Hawaii, you know, on a weekly basis, right? So it's a long, it's a, that's a long nine, 10 hour, 10 or 11 hour flight, you know, every week. Um, and I just really wanted to get, you know, I just wanted to get resettled and reacquainted with my kids. And so I took a year off. I told my wife, like, how about I take one year off? And she said, yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. She went and she, and she worked in an architecture practice and I was the, the papa chicken. <laughs> <laughs>
from doing all of the corporate work to being a stay-at-home dad that's such the quite the shift it, it was great i guess your time at denon and living the the it seems like a very unconventional corporate role um just because of the sheer volume of starting things up in different countries and ultimately operating like a entrepreneur if you will um, yeah anything from that experience or maybe let's say the top two or three things that you took from that experience and said, okay, this is how I'm going to live the rest of my life. This is how I'm going to go about starting companies. Yeah. I mean, everything, you know, I mean, I can point back to my childhood and I can point back to those experiences and I can definitely string together, you know, like what was important, but you know, the number one thing and the common theme in both of these is that, you know, it's your life, you're in control, you know, it's your choice you have, you know, nobody's going to do it for you. You know, nobody was going to figure out the Rubik's cube of how to build a network in Indonesia. That was me. Nobody was going to figure out, nobody was helping along the way to say, you know, prepare four months in advance for a college entrance exam. So you can maybe apply to, you know, more prestigious universities, you know, none of that was happening. Right. And so, you know, in, as you get more mature and you take more control and responsibility for yourself, um, you know, you really just unlock a world of possibility. And I think those things so obviously align beautifully with entrepreneurship or even investing when you're imagining, you know, what a group of people might be able to achieve and do. Um, and so that, that was probably the, the most, um, the most specific lesson I took. I think the other lesson that's very common and connects the two is about figuring out how to fit in. You know, nobody wants to be the loud, well, maybe somebody does, but <laughs> I didn't want to be the, I didn't want to be the loud, you know, American, you know, in France or in Indonesia, you know, I didn't want to be that person. Um, and I certainly didn't want to be the loud, obnoxious person in my community growing up as a, as a kid, you know, I wanted to fit in, um, in a good way. Right. And, and lead, be in a position where I could be, you know, a leader. Um, and so I think, you know, those lessons obviously once again, apply to entrepreneurship and being an investor and, and all that stuff. So you know, they're really, they're really simple and straightforward in hindsight. Yeah, that's great. So so you take this year off and then do you, you go straight into invest investing before you start a company. Is that correct? That is correct. So what was your first investment and how did that deal come about? Well, it was, we, you know, like anything, like it's what's, what's your investment and how do you do it? And you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, we were just a team and you know, one of the first investments we did was a company called uh, danger. Um, oh, so this was a, was this a venture capital? Uh, well, it's like, it's like a loose collective if you want. Right. You know, so, you know, okay. syndicate, yeah, there you go. Um, and so, you know, we invested in a company called danger and that's Andy Rubin's, um, company. It was the sidekick. It was one of the first, if not the first kind of smartphone, if you want. Um, and I don't know, you're probably too young to, to have had one, but, um, I think a lot of people still know about the, you know, the sidekick. So it, it was, uh, uh, 1999 and 2000. I was yeah. nine years old, so probably not. 
<laughs> if you remember these T-Mobile devices that had a flip screen that would flip up and it had a browser embedded in it, right? That's, you know, that was it. And, uh, and so that was, a good, that was a good place to start. And we made a bunch of great investments, uh, post-communications and, um, you know, Quinn Street and, and uh, you know, and I eventually made a, an investment as part of VSP. Uh, which was a, then a formal venture fund in 2003 in a company called Oddpost. And that's where it all kind of changed for me. Um, that was a really significant moment. So doing the first investments and figuring out, you know, can you do it or not? Can you have some success? That was great. But where I knew like, oh, this is something that I can do was when I invested in Tony Schneider and Ethan Diamond and Ian Lamb at Oddpost because they were flipping the model upside down. They were doing everything in such a capital efficient way. The way we see companies today where they have incredibly low burn, they can do so much with you know getting proof of concept into the hands of consumers with very little dollars because of you know shared you know cloud computing services and all this. They were doing that and they were basically building a DHTML based or Ajax based um, you know um, uh, company. And, you know, so I invested a little bit of dollars in them. We ended up in 2004 being acquired by Yahoo. That's a big deal because in 2000 and, you know, from 2001 through 2003, it was like, you know, the web was like dead. <laughs> yeah, I heard about so, that. Something about dot com boom or something along those. Yeah, exactly. And so it was not a. It was like you know everybody who had enthusiastically come to the valley had left. Um, and sorry to cut you off. Did you lose out on any investments that you had made during that time? Oh yeah, of course, of course. You spent a lot of time winding things down and cleaning things up and whatever. I mean the. You know, I had made more than we lost, right? So, so you, we were in a good, healthy spot, but um, it was still just a really negative time period, right? You just always, every day was just like, oh my goodness, we misstructured this company and it was overvalued, and now we got to recapitalize it, reset it, all that stuff. So, Oddpost was all of a sudden like this, you know, breath of fresh air. And it was like very different. And there were three companies at the time there was Flickr. Which also got bought by Yahoo, which is started by Katerina Fake and Stuart Butterfield. Stuart's gone on to found Slack. That's right. Um, and there was Blogger that was started by Evan Williams. Um, uh, and then there was, you know, Oddpost started by Ethan and Ian and then Tony being the CEO. And those were the three kind of shining examples of a new kind of lightweight, um, you know, small capital, do a lot right and really take advantage of the infrastructure that was in place and that was just such a light bulb opening up and so while these were all small exits they were notable exits and you know if you ask anybody who's been an investor over that 20-year period they all know you know odd post and Flickr and and uh and blogger for sure oh yeah every, yeah i'm sure everybody's heard of those kind of early stage companies getting quite important exits at that time yeah it was great. After, you know, investment seems to be going well, investing's going well, the dot-com boom happened, it bust, you're still, you're still on top. And then you decide to go in, start your own company, Sphere. Yeah. So where did that idea come from? 
So actually, it's it's more. I think it's more interesting than that. Um, it's not like oh, you know, close this chapter of being an investor and then start a new chapter as oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. What part of the light go? You know, the light bulb for in my head was you know not only is it cheaper and you can make many more investment bets with a lot less capital and see a lot more earlier right and so you can you can create higher probabilities of success before you get in too deep or figure out how to extract yourself and things that aren't working not only did i like it from an investment perspective i thought that was like the future and like that was going to be amazing but i also thought that like why can't I start a company myself? It's so little capital. And I can, in a very short period of time, in one to two years, you know, take a shot on goal here and maybe, you know, uh, maybe make something happen. And so um, I decided to, you know, kind of continue, continue being an investor, but I'm going to try starting a company. And so I co-founded with um, a guy named uh, Martin Remy and Stephen Niker, our two guys, um, and a company called Sphere. Uh, Tony Schneider also was a was a, a co-founder in the, in the business with us from Oddpost. Um, he was non-operational, so we were operating the business, but he was he was a great advisor and critical in the early days. And um, I went out and I raised a half million dollars from people that I had known and respected. Um, at, you know, as angels. And so people like Doug McKenzie, who had been at Kleiner Perkins or Will Hurst from Kleiner Perkins, uh, my partner today, Phil Black, um, you know, and, and True Ventures. And so we, you know, so, you know, we founded Sphere. And, and you started off with half a million dollars. That was like what you started off on day one. Yeah, half a million dollars. But here in the exact same time frame, in four months period, um, we also started True Ventures. And, you know, so Phil and John are the founders of True Ventures. You know, Tony, Tony and I had our day jobs. Um, Tony was at Yahoo and I was running Sphere, you know, freshly running Sphere. And they were trying to pull together this fund and we joined on with them, right? So, you know, we became part of the team. And so we're out there raising a fund in parallel to starting Sphere. And at the same time, Tony and I are also having conversations with a young, um, you know, phenom in our, you know, one of the chosen ones, Matt Mullenweg um, from WordPress and our founder of Automatic, which is the company behind WordPress. And um, that, you know, a year later, we, we made that official and we invested in, in Matt, right? But all that stuff happened in like a four month period, you know, for us. And, um, you know, it's just such a, a breaking the mold moment because you had to, prior, you had to really choose, you know, or felt like you had to choose. I'm going to be a venture capitalist or I'm going to be an entrepreneur or I'm going to be something else, you know, and here we just kind of flipped the script and said, well, why can't, why can't we do it both? Right. And that ended up unlocking incredible advantage advantages for us or for me personally and and certainly for us as a firm yeah i i think i think the notion of doing just one thing is quite redundant now uh, yes <laughs> i think people can do a lot i mean look i'm reading this book at the moment and it talks about how we have 168 hours in a week i mean if you work a full-time job 
and you do 40 hours a week, you've got enough time to do another thing efficiently as well. Um, it's just all about how you prioritize your time and how effective you are at every you know junction where you need to be effective. So no, I totally agree in terms of, yeah, of course do both. And it seems like it, it worked out quite all right for you guys anyway. So it, it did work out quite well. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about fear, um, fear, sphere. So sphere. Uh, what was it? What did it do? How did you grow it? Yeah. So what we thought was ha- what was happening with um, blogs, right? So the intersection of, you know, knowing blogger and watching what Ev was doing and successfully then exiting to Google uh, to what Matt was trying to do with, you know, with WordPress early days. Um, and just thinking about how the search engines were working, you know, primarily Google, but there were other search engines we used in that time frame, right? Yahoo and Microsoft and all that. But, you know, today it's basically Google. Um, they didn't really index blogs and they didn't really, they weren't really searchable. And the content that was being created uh, wasn't treated in a way um, in the interface or, or in the results in the way that, you know, mainstream, you know, content was because it wasn't real or it wasn't official because it was a blog um, kind of thing. And so I thought there was an opportunity um, to be able to create a, a blog search engine. So another company uh, at the time was called Technorati that was trying to do that as well. And so the two of us embarked on this. And sure enough, you know, it didn't take long for Google, you know, to just add a little blog tab. That's where it started. You used to have like, you know, have news images, videos, you know, all that stuff, right? They used to have a blog, you know, tab, believe it or not. Was it integrated into the results? And when that happened, I realized, okay, wait a minute, you know, there's just no way we're going to compete <laughs> with Google. But our, you know, Martin and Steve um, had developed a long time back, even prior to the formation of Sphere, a little snippet of code which we were using in the heart of our algorithm for generating the search results around contextual matching. And what all of a sudden I realized is like you could take uh, an article, you could be reading a, a, a New York Times article, and we could, you know, understand what that article was about. And then we could find things new voices, people and blogs or eventually podcasts and then videos and all that stuff that were contextually relevant to that art, that article and put hyperlinks into articles. Right. And this is something that editors had to do manually as a pain in the backside for them. It took up enormous resources and hours and we just automated that. And so we had this contextual matching engine, um, it just took off. And at one point in time, you know, we were on the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Time, every single major, you know, content provider and all the awesome blogs in the world, you know, the giga ohms and the tech crunches and all that stuff. Um, they were all using us, you know. In fact, I look, you know, like, a, you know, not a not that's something I'm happy about, but, you know, there was like, even like Breitbart media, you know, and like, you know, <laughs> you know, like Andrew Breitbart, who's now deceased. Yeah. You uh, might, you might not want to mention that in your, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's not my politics, but, 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 but it's interesting, you know, all those were just individuals that were creating these new voices that will eventually come 
you know, and I, I mentioned that in the context of like stuff that starts to rival the established content, you know, providers, right? And so, you know, we were indexing all that and then, you know, providing these, these hyperlinks um, to different sites. How big was, I mean, how were you getting the word out and how big was the team at this point? So we did something um, which was different and it's, it's similar to, you know, you know, kind of a, a playbook I've used both in about.me and sphere. They're different, but in the case of sphere, we had all these blogs early on where were our kind of early adopters, if you want. So the TechCrunch and gigomes of the world and they actually put the sphere logo at the bottom of their article and you could click it in this little kind of dick costello from twitter at the time he called me after he saw it he said dude that is like the sexiest thing i've ever seen the way the way that this little box opened it just like pinched from the corners and opened up and it would have links to these different things organized right you know video or this or that um and um and, you know, so we were basically getting the word out because we were able to brand on top of this emerging set of content providers, right? So at the New York Times, you would never see another brand on the article. And so that's just kind of the way we did it. And I think, you know, eventually when Time, uh, Time Inc. called me, was our first kind of big mainstream media partner, maybe like a month after we had launched with all these Kind of very highly visible blogs there everybody all of a sudden was talking about and thinking about um they called and said hey can we do an integration with you and i was just kind of they reached out to us i was blew my mind and um so we we did that and i realized that our brand got built on uh, the shoulders of these other content providers and we eventually had our logo on the new york times and wall street journal and cnn and just Really, honestly, Reuters, every single uh, AP article out there. So your marketing was built into the product by design. Yeah, it was. Well, and it was, well, it was a little bit by accident. It was because we had leveraged, you know, um, we'd, you know, it's like a surfer on a wave. We'd found the big wave out there. And so it's going to bring you in. And, you know, we had found, you know, the big wave here was all these little micro content creators oh malik and you know mike errington and whoever else was out there doing it and um you know just putting our brand alongside theirs made it visible to everybody else it made it cool and the big brands like not only did they want to offer that functionality because they wanted to embrace the web and the thought of think about that think this is you know 2006 the new york times pointing to an article outside of the new york times that's revolutionary it's revolutionary, right? And so they felt, I think, like they were doing something very modern and progressive and step forward. Um, and so we just really built our brand around that. Wow. So you guys were almost, I guess, like the original, I don't want to say Taboola or Outbrain because I, I don't Well, Outbrain, Outbrain actually ended up buying Sphere later on, much, much, much later on. So, um, yes, absolutely. Our vision, you know, if we had not sold the company, would have been to do what Outbrain is doing, but not, I don't particularly love. Not as tacky, basically. You can say it, it's fine. <laughs> well, I want to be respectful. Yeah, you know? got it. But, but yeah, I think we were doing it with, 
with content that we felt, you know, was less cheesy and the hooks that was getting you to click on it. It was just straightforward. Here's another article on this topic from, you know, Om Malik at GigOm. Yeah. So, Got it. So I just want to take a few steps back and, and just um, kind of break this down a little bit. So from the point of raising money, how long did it take you to launch the actual product? Like in terms of like ideation, capital, and then to actually launch. And then how big was the team up until the point where you guys eventually sold to AOL? Well, we launched with three people. Right. So we were incredibly capital efficient, but it took us a while. It took us, uh, I want to say, six to nine months. I know that's a big gap, but, you know, it's a long time ago. So, you know, it was somewhere six to nine months it took us uh, to get proof of concept out there. I think we had like a working prototype that we were testing, individually testing uh, with people um, a couple months in. But we had to really refine the results. Um, and in fact, we hired in this time period, it's another kind of intersection point, which is, I think is just so fascinating in hindsight. Um, you know, I got hooked up with this, uh, student, um, at Stanford and, um, named Elizabeth and she, she was working with one of the investors in, in, in sphere. And she was also a student and she said, yeah, I said, listen, we need some people that can kind of manually go through search results and weight them and say, this is a good match, this wouldn't have been a good match, and all that kind of stuff. And it's just kind of grinding work, if you want. And, you know, I'll pay you $10 an hour, and maybe you can get a group of students. And two of the students, you know, the other two students that she hired to do this were Kevin Wheel, who ended up running, you know, a big chunk of Twitter, um, and Kevin Systrom, founder of Instagram. And these two guys, you know, along with Elizabeth, you know, worked with us uh, in the early days of Sphere as we were trying to refine, you know, the algorithms to match like what would have been a good result. Um, so it took us, you know, it took us a while to do that. Then to kind of evolve or pivot, kind of a light pivot, if you want, but to kind of repackage and think about Sphere in a different way where eventually became crazy, you know, successful. Um, that, you know, took us another, you know, I want to call three or four months, but, you know, we were, we, it's never, we never like turned off the search engine that just kept going, kept informing us and kept helping us make the algorithms better. But then, you know, we repackaged and launched and, you know, it was pretty instant. Wow. And so then up until the point of when you saw to AOL, how, how big were you guys? Um, we weren't that big of a team. I think we got up into the mid twenties, but we were, but we were our footprint and presence. It was just so enormous, you know. I mean, I don't want to compare it to Instagram at all because that's not that's not fair, you know. This is not an Instagram type company, but you know, when Instagram was bought by Facebook. I think it was less than 10 employees and it had this, had this massive, you know, massive footprint, right? We had an, I can't underscore it up. I mean, there was no A-list mainstream media site out there in the world that wasn't using Sphere. 
that's in, that's incredible. And I always think about that, especially as I work on my own product is how do we be as effective with such a lean team? Um, yes. You know, some people want to go out and raise millions of dollars and hire, you know, 20 people with an MVP, but it's like, no, you should be doing the complete opposite. It's like, let's raise what we need and focus on building something efficiently. That's right. And, and, you know, we did that in part because I, you know, because of my work with Matt and Tony uh, at WordPress, what I was able to see was this, this kind of notion of a, a distributed team a distributed network of team. Like before that in my, my head, it was like everybody had to be in one office. All of a sudden it was like, you know, another light bulb went off and it was like, Oh my gosh, no, this is so much more effective. And it's not only cheaper to hire, but you have broader access to talent uh, to hire. And in so many ways, it's a meritocracy versus, you know, uh, all the stuff when you have, you know, office culture and physical interaction, you know, there's so many things that create biases in your, in your, in your, in the way that you view people, you know, and, you know, fairly or unfairly, right. But that's, it happens. And when you're just dealing with people, you know, in text (laughs) or audio, you don't even, you don't even have video tools in this period. Right. You know, like it's just like do they do their job do they you know does the code work does it break do they fix it do they do it in a timely manner and like whatever and so the efficiency that we were unlocking in this time period which i think now so many entrepreneurs are leveraging um you know we're really at the forefront of this you know we didn't nobody no one person can claim they invented that right it's just it's a thing that happened but we were we were literally at the forefront of that because wordpress is still remote till this day 100 percent. they don't have any office there everywhere yeah nearing a thousand employees that's incredible that's insane it's incredible company i think envision also has taken their their whole company i don't know if you know envision um yeah remote 700 employees no office um that's insane so then okay so sphere's over 22 people you sell it to aol it's a great success and then you you kind of go back into investing for a while is well i never stopped so you know and you're watching you're watching wordpress grow into you know into wordpress which is obviously another exciting journey um and then you go and start about.me yeah so you know i I finished my tenure at AOL, and uh, Tim Armstrong um, had been hired away from Google. And Tim had built, largely credited building the revenue base, I think, at at, uh, at Google on the sales side. And um, he was becoming CEO, and I was leaving. And I met with him, and he said, "Why, you know, I." I'm coming here. I need people like you, right? I need, I need entrepreneurs. I don't need you to leave. So I agreed to, to, to continue to be an advisor, you know, to, to AOL and to AOL ventures. Um, but you know, I was trying to, yeah, I was ready to go and I was trying to figure out what to do next. And and I thought, you know, I'll just maybe become full-time at true, but I didn't feel like that was the right move. It just still didn't feel right. Um, and I had so enjoyed being an entrepreneur and I'd learned so much that I thought, you know, maybe I should do it again. And so I had this idea in my head 
that I'd been kicking around for, I don't know, a good five years around just simple profile pages. And I thought it was really incredibly neat. I think it's even needed more today uh, than it was then. But I remember socializing it with our team. And, you know, a couple of people said, you know, that's a pretty dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. After everything you've done. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. That may, they may end up being right. You never know. Right. But, um, um, but, you know, it just kept gnawing at me. And so with uh, Tim Young and Ryan Freitas, um, I, you know, we started about.me. And, um, and I think that was in 2010. Um, and, you know, and I just continued to do what I was doing at True. And by then, you know, we were on to raising our third fund. And, you know, we had whatever it was, you know, $550, $600 million under management. And we didn't really know if any of the companies, well, he had a sense, but we didn't have, you know, we didn't have data that says, oh, these companies you're investing in are working, right, working really well. You know, we had done Fitbit in 2008, MakerBot uh, along that time frame. We'd done Bright Roll in 2006. Um, we had done WordPress in 2005. Like, you know, it, stuff was working, but we just didn't have validation yet. So was it, you know, who knew if that was working or not, except for I knew culturally it was working. Like we're having fun and we loved working together. But I thought, you know, let's just start another company and keep doing the way I'm doing it. And so then how did you start About.me? What was the first thing? Well, I went out and I raised um, a quarter million dollars. And um, I, you know, actually, that's not true. We raised $400,000. We did it in two tranches. Um, we took a quarter million as the first tranche. And then the second tranche was one fifty. And um, we raised $400,000. We did it at a $4 million post-money valuation. We could have done it at a much higher valuation. And is that because of the, the, cal the caliber of the team? Caliber of the team, you know, previous success um, and access, right, to some of the premier capital sources for early stage investing. And so, but the thing I knew was, you know, my, my, my dad had some good sayings and one of them was, be careful, you might get what you asked for. And I think that's a good, it's a good thing we can revisit when we talk about, you know, my investment, you know, some of the key things I've learned and taken away. But, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's not a game. It's not about, because I have momentum and the pendulum has swung into the favor of the entrepreneur or venture capitalist. The job is not to get the highest, you know, valuation, right? The job is to get the right valuation and to structure your company in a way that makes sense so you can logically build it over time. And so I had the, I understood that and I had the discipline not to overheat my valuation in day one. Um, so we did it at 4 million posts. So it was 10%. You know, um, you know, that went out to the investors and we held on to the rest of it. And then how big was, so you build this platform again, how long did it take you to actually build the platform? And then what did you do to launch it? It didn't take us very long to build the platform. <laughs> we, it's a pretty simple idea. I have an about.me page as well. Um, Thank you. And, that, and fun fact, they actually wrote a blog post about me. So if you go through your about.me's blog, you'll see me in there. <laughs> oh, that is great. I'll have to go check that out. Um, but uh, no, I think it, it took us, I don't know, it took us a, 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 just a handful of months, you know, to, 
to kind of get a working prototype and then to code it up and make it, you know, ready for the web, I think another couple months. But when we launched, we had, um, we already had, you know, some like just momentum going into the launch. A, we had incredible investors. Um, the three of us had added a couple, um, you know, we'd added three people uh, to the team. Um, and like, we went into it and we had, you know, along the way, you know, gotten all these incredible people to agree to be advisors. So it's back to something similar to Sphere where you leverage the brand equity of something else in order to elevate your brand in a way much faster. You know, we didn't realize what we were doing, kind of realized, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like some evil plan. You know, we had, we had 26 advisors for a team that was four full-time employees. So we had six advisors per employee, and um, which is insane, right? Just a little bit, yeah. But, yeah, but what we did by doing that was these advisors, Veronica Belmont and Om Malik and Matt Mullenweg and just, you know, just incredible people. Chris, you know, or, you know Tony Hawk and Chris Saka and just people had these big blowing up Twitter streams day one, they were launching our brand for us because they were attaching a link to their about me page to their Twitter profiles and they were communicating to people. And this was unlike anything we'd ever seen because, you know, at that time, Twitter was just, just at the very beginning, it was so nascent, but you know, as these people promoted stuff, you weren't just communicating to your echo chamber in the valley. You were communicating across state lines and uh, cultural lines and, you know, internationally and just so many, you know, wow. Like, you know, O'Malley, when O'Malley, you know, said, you know, hey, I just set up an About.me page and it's really interesting. He was just communicating to those of us in Silicon Valley that was going to people in Indiana and India. And, you know, and so our reach day one, was just extraordinary. I think our our group of advisors had something like ten million Twitter followers, which doesn't seem that big now, but like no, it, 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 it still does. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like we were getting ten million, you know, kind of potential impressions day one. And so about that, me just kind of just hit fire again and just grew so quickly, you know, early on. And we were only as, you know, as I think you know, uh, I'll preempt the question, but, you know, we were acquired again by AOL. And, you know, it was only, you know, we'd only really been working on it for four or five months. Um, and, you know, I had this connection back to AOL because I agreed to be an advisor. I knew Tim and he felt like, you know, it was something that they wanted to own and he made us a offer that you know, it was just, I, there was no way we were going to say no to it. Um, <laughs> I mean, after five months selling something, that's, yeah, neither would I, to be fair. Yeah, I just, I just don't, you know, for you entrepreneurs listening, that, that's, that just doesn't happen that way. So. That's insane. And I guess during that short time, what were some of the, the challenges? Were there any challenges, like, that you recall? Yeah, uh, there was challenges around, um, you know, and I think it's still a challenge, right? The, the tension of thinking, 
is the simplicity of this page enough? Or do there need to be more hooks that, you know, make people want to come back and interact, right? And the way that these businesses were starting to get value on kind of DAUs and, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't really fit for something like Enabout.me, right? It's not a product that was designed for you to come back to every morning or several times during the day. Think about Instagram, you know, on your phone. Like, you know, I don't know, you know, if you have Instagram, but if you do, like, you're probably opening it an insane amount of times. And actually, I'm actually trying to work on reducing that. (laughs) Me too. It's one I I just put a time limit on mine, you know, it's like, you know, enough Instagram. So like about.me, about.me was never designed to do that. About.me was designed to be useful to you. Not that Instagram's not, not saying that, but it was just designed to be pure utility. And it was like, okay, there's all these people that are getting little snippets of information about you from all these different profiles and places that you have on the social web, but none of them actually really, you know, complete a full picture of you. And that problem is even worse today. People don't realize it, but like, you know, like in LinkedIn, you're one person and in Instagram, you're another person. In Twitter, you're even probably a slightly different person. And so which one are you, right? And the reality is you're all those people, right? And so it's like, you know, what about.me was, you know, what we've been trying to do is just to create a really safe environment where you can present yourself on your terms without any of the kind of the silly, you know, network effects and which penalizes us on one hand but it really should be refreshing and serve the user incredibly well um, because there's no friend requests and there's no connect requests and there's just none of that stuff, you know, that you get on LinkedIn and Twitter, Instagram and, you know, all these things. Um, and, you know, it was just meant to be something that was a really pure way for you to present yourself um, on your terms. In, in in that regard, I guess you guys done what you set out to do. I mean, like you said, I know, I mean, about.me, it, it's still around. Um, like I said, I have one. I don't know if it's still doing the kind of traffic it used to do, like when you launched, but it does what it says on the tin ultimately, right? Yeah, no, it does. You know, about.me has only grown. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty enormous, you know, size company that you know, nobody really talks about, right? You know, because it's not designed once again to do that. But I think where we've learned, and the CEO of the company is Mindy Lauk. Uh, I stepped away a year ago and Mindy took over the reins in last July. So a little bit over a year ago. And she's amazing. Um, but, you know, the audience that has really, we figured out where we have like the most value to are those people that are kind of the 1099ers, right? People that have a side gig or a side hustle or, you know, they're working for themselves and those people need to have, you know, a very consistent uh, profile that they're putting out there and they need something in their email signature. They need something that links to from all their different social sites, from their LinkedIn site, all that stuff that right ties that picture together. And we find that those, that cohort of users gets tremendous value out of the product, right? And we'll pay for it. Um, and, you know, we don't charge a ton of money, but, you know, we integrate your your brand so you can have TonyConrad.me or TonyConrad.com and it can point right to your website, right? You're about that me page. So all that kind of stuff. 
No, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to switch gears a bit more now and 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 talk about, I guess, you know, startups in a in a general sense. I mean, you've had all the success. You've you've pretty much seen everything: the boom, the bust, and then the the reemergence of tech. So you've you've seen a lot. So it'll be it'll be really interesting to get your perspective on a few things. Um, so the first thing I really want to dig into is, you know, for both of your companies, you you kind of started, you know with some capital behind you you've you've experienced some success what was the rationale each time to raise money as opposed to bootstrap which you probably could have done yeah um i think raising money helped provide a framework of um structure if you want around the company right it's a forcing mechanism to like create an option pool so you can reward people that are going to go on the journey with you and and all those kinds of things. And it's also great, right? It's this amazing opportunity to bring together a bunch of people that you like, enjoy, respect, or you think have a very specific skill or access point that can help you to build your business. And so, you know, I, you know, I've always respected those things um, and have embraced those things. And so even though I could have bootstrapped and not had the, the dilution, in the grand scheme of things, the dilution is so worth it you know, from my vantage point because of that network effect that you get from having a bunch of people who have acknowledged, right, what you're doing is interesting. Even if they're not, like, actively talking to you every day and giving you, like, concrete, you know, advice or connections or that stuff in theory that you want your investors to do, just the acknowledgement factor of those people think what you're doing and your vision for something merits their involvement, right, and their financial alignment with you. That already is a huge statement that when you can make that to the market, you should. So I, I think, you know, having, having these incredible people, uh, you know, around the table, the figurative table um, is just invaluable. It really is. And what's more fun, you know, like, you know, the, the thing about this at each stage, you got to remember is, are you having fun? You know, and, you know, is it going to be a pain in the backside to have these people invested in your company or is this going to give you a source of joy? And um, for me, you know, the answer was it gives me a source of joy to go back to the people that supported, you know, us on our journey with Sphere. What an honor to be able to go back and say to them, hey, listen, this isn't without risk, but I'm doing this new thing. And I'd love, you know, for you to be involved with this because you've been so supportive to us over a long journey here, right? That includes lots of different touch points. And there's lots of different things that we can do together. Some will be successful, some won't. That's okay. But, you know, when we get it right, you get it right in a really big way. It's really meaningful and it's fun. You know, what's more lonely than like, you know, doing it all by yourself and waking up and like, oh, it's just me. I know that story all too well. Oh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, <laughs> um, no, no, that makes a lot of sense. No, it's, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And then I guess, what of where do you see entrepreneurs making the most mistakes? I mean, you've invested in some notable companies. I mean, the, the list is too long. You, you named some of them earlier. But what have been some been most of the most common mistakes you've seen? 
Um, I think people, you know, get ahead of themselves from a valuation stage way too early. And that means that they're, they're optimizing on the wrong, uh, you know, set of variables from day one. Um, and it puts them in a structural, it can put them in a structural bind, you know, later on. Um, I think that's the first thing. The second thing is not paying enough attention. Um, I'm, I'm always a little shocked at how few questions founders ask me about myself or us as a firm. And this is going to be such a meaningful partnership that even though, yeah, they can read the headlines and they can see the packaging and the packaging of true or myself is, you know, you know, can be, it's, you know, hopefully it's, you know, great. Right. But like, you still need to inform yourself and you need to dig in and understand like what's their business model? What makes them tick? What's going to look like success for them? How are we going to work together? There's just so many questions that they should dig into. And I don't think enough entrepreneurs do that. And then lo and behold, what happens is when things get a little dicey, which they almost always get dicey, they're even dicey sometimes when it's a good news discussion, right? You know, then greed sets in. Should we sell, you know, Blue Bottle at this stage or not? Right. You know, it's like, oh, my God, if we hold it, we could probably get four or five, you know, X that number, you know, down the road. Right. Like there's like just there's all kinds of things that you really need to collaborate with your investors on. And so, you know, spending time understanding who they're going to be and having a foundation for how you're going to work together. I think it's just such a, a mission critical step that so many entrepreneurs still miss today. Uh, they get caught up in the hype and the game of it all. And it's just, you know, it's unfortunate. No, that's that's so that's so interesting. And um, how early were you guys in on Blue Bottle? I didn't see that online. Um, no, Blue Bottle, we were the first check. And um, that was a very atypical, uh, you know, investment for us. Um, that's not what we're set up to do. It was a much larger check than we ever write for a first-time company. Um, and it was in a sector that really has little to do with what our mandate is to kind of go do as investors um, in tech. So, but, you know, but we did that and, um, you know, the company ended up being acquired for, you know, about $800 million from Nestle, you know, for two thirds of the company and, and, um, you know, just a phenomenal deal. Right. But, but, you know, in those conversations, I never had, I never blinked an eye, you know, when talking with the management team of the founder um, in my, steadfast belief that the business could have been, you know, a four to $5 billion business over time. Um, and so those are real conversations that you have to be able to have. And you have to do it on a, a foundation of kind of trust and empathy. And, and um, you know, in, in this case, you know, we were a good match with them because, you know, we were incredibly supportive if we got that. Yeah, no, that's, that was an incredible exit. And so when, when should people think about raising money? And when they do raise the money, what's the first thing they should be doing? I think if you're a first-time entrepreneur, um, you know, I think like you should you should start the process of meeting with people, as many people, angels, you know, firms, you know, that are appropriate. You don't want to meet with firms that are, you know, are really, you know, too too fundraisings later like you know not not when you just really have an idea 
Um, it's just too early. But you do want to start to get to know like the Series A investors, uh, those kind of firms, right? The first round capitals, the true ventures, you know, there's a bunch of us. Um, in addition to all the micro funds, right? Who could be in the angels, who could be the people that provide you capital. So I think you want to get to know them and you want to test your idea um, on them. Um, that's, you know, in both the case, less so in about.me, but certainly in the case of Sphere, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a slam dunk, easy access to capital. You know what I mean? I had to go out and I wasn't sure how people I had worked with or knew from the investment community, the Doug McKenzie's of the world, how would they think about me as an entrepreneur? Right. And so, and did they think my idea was stupid, you know, or lacked a level of sophistication. And so, you know, going out there and testing that in conversations, even as you're formulating the company, as you're even deciding if you're really going to do it, I think it's like, you know, something you just got to do. Um, it's not the sequential thing where like, oh, we formed the company and we start building out the tech and we start doing, you know, things to do, you know, MVPs and proof of concept and all that stuff. And we're not talking to investors prior to that or in parallel to that. I think that's that's misguided, um, and I, I don't think it's gonna it's not gonna lead to probably the type of results that you you know you need. Yeah, no, that, that's that's good. And I wanted to ask: um, Do you think venture capital caters for those who already come from money? Um, I mean, you know, there's a huge discussion at the moment in terms of like you know, privilege and access to capital and the, you know, various groups don't have access to capital. So therefore you don't see as many of these founders from different backgrounds, whether they be women or people of color. Do you, do you feel as though venture capital facilitates that kind of close quarters? Yeah, it probably does. To, it probably does to a certain degree. Um, you know, I like to think that it's a meritocracy, but you know, how do you get, how do you get in front of somebody like us you know, it comes through our network of people that we've supported. Um, so it's people that are already in the flow, right? And it's it's not just it's not just about privilege in terms of you know wealth. It's 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 also privilege in terms of familiarity with the community, right? And access with the community. The thing I think that everybody can do as an entrepreneur from day one. And I think this is largely every entrepreneur's responsibility. Um, and that is to build out a network. And I don't care f from what background you come from or whatever. You know, if you just cold call me and trying to get a meeting, you know, it really doesn't matter what background you're from. <laughs> it doesn't matter anything, right? That's not probably going to work. But if you... Got, if you've already taken the initiative to build out a network and to get involved in things and to go to the events, you know, these events, you know, most of them are free, right? There's in San Francisco, any given night, there's dozens of events. And yeah, maybe it's not the TechCrunch Disrupt Conference, but like there's a bunch of events. That's too expensive anyway, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But you know, what I was trying to, you know, just say, listen, I understand. Like, it's like you know, you have to buy a ticket to some of these things, right? But, but there's so many that you don't. And the trick is, 
just start getting involved and get active and get out there and ask those people what they're going to to tomorrow night. You know, I used to say to our team, like, you know, venture capital and entrepreneurship, it's a contact sport. You know, if you're not out there in the flow at least three to four nights a week, then I don't really think, um, you know, you're going to experience the level of success that you want. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, everybody, you know, I'm now far past going out three or four nights a week, you know, to, to network. I want to hide. <laughs> but you've definitely done your time. You've done your time. Yeah. And I have partners who are like, you never did, you know, really never did that. And they're incredibly successful because they've figured out the right roles and, you know, they're part of our platform. And so that all works incredibly well for each one of us but i think for the most part it's your role and responsibility to get out there and get involved actually very very good and i've i'm a huge advocate for kind of networking and putting yourself out there um because like you said if you don't have access to that network you can't you can't just sit on the sidelines and complain you have to kind of take a really proactive approach um and just you know be available Go to all the free events. And, you know, I definitely did tons of that in London um, because the tech community and entrepreneurial community and and the kind of startup ecosystem is still kind of developing. Um, But, yeah, I mean, uh, it was very easy and and easy to get involved in some of these events and go to the Google campus and, you know, just go and meet up and just sign up to everything. Um, Because Because each of these groups, right, the thing to remember, all of us, you know, unless you're just tone deaf to what's going on in the world in the last you know decade not just in the last year or two years but like the last decade around gender equality and inclusion and socioeconomic diversity and just all these topics right that we all have to own collectively like all these organizations you know are they they have the right spirit you know everybody has the right spirit and so you know everybody's trying to figure out a way to be as inclusive and you know, as open um, to anybody who signals interest in being an entrepreneur, right? And so that's just, you know, I go back to there's just so many events out there that are, you know, um, they're very just easy. If you show initiative, you can join. Um, You know, it's not about who you know or, you know, how much money you have to buy a ticket. It's just about, you know, figuring out where those events are. And it's pretty easy to do, Um, you know, it's online and, you know, you ask around, you know, and you'll, you'll find it. There's even online stuff that you can do to plug into communities and to network. So, you know, I think it's out there for everybody. And um, I wanted to ask, what do you think about the current landscape of, I guess, the current startup landscape at the moment? I mean, uh, granted, it's, it's totally different to when you guys started out um, with Sphere and About.me. But what do you currently think about the lay of the land? It it is it is so um, you know I've, I think I probably have had the same answer since I got into you know since I moved to San Francisco and got involved with tech it, it's so crazy out there um, <laughs> it's like so even even more uh, energetic than than it was last year and there's even more craziness happening than last year um, you know I, I just I just think we've never. I mean, the explosion of companies and entrepreneurship as a vocation and as a craft, you know, for, for youth and, 
and for anybody of any age, um, I just think, you know, it's just increasingly accessible and desirable and, and fun. And so therefore you have lots and lots more companies and, you know, it's not one venture firm winner takes all. I think there's a lot of venture firms, you know, who can prosper in this and there's a lot of individuals who can prosper in this, you know, moment. Um, and, you know, just really do amazing, cool, fun stuff. When it comes to investing, what is your philosophy? What do you look for in entrepreneurs? Yeah, yeah, I'm a non, um, I'm definitely a non-thesis investor. Um, I'm more of a feel investor for sure. Um, I, you know, I like entrepreneurs that, um, you know, who have a sense of their, you know, their foundation have a sense of what it is they want to do and why they want to do it and kind of can tell that story, right? And stitch that together in a way that is compelling. And I spend probably, you know, I, you know, I, I like to think more than anybody else, but like, you know, really I spend a disproportionate amount of time trying to understand who the individual is and, or individuals and what makes them tick, what their background is, how they got there. Um, and that's what I'm looking for. Um, I'm looking for people that I think can be, you know, they can come to the face or the voice of a category. And that doesn't have to be a new category. It can be an existing category. So when you look at the body of people I've worked with, you know, just, you know, in even recent years, you know, you've got a James Freeman who very much, I think, is, you know, kind of the face, if you want, of the artisanal coffee scene. Um, and you've got a Matt Mullenweg, who's certainly one of the voices of a democratization of a voice, right? And, you know, you had Brie Pettis, who was certainly, you know, one of the faces, if not the face of 3D printing and MakerBot. And, you know, it just kind of goes on and on and on. There's just, you know, those are the kind of people that I'm looking to invest in. Um, you know, we last year, or a little bit over a year ago now, we invested in a company called Teamable, which is a team out of Armenia. And it's a guy named Maruj and a woman named Laura, and and a, and, a, and they have two co-founders in in Armenia. And you know, when I sat down with Laura, I was just so you know kind of blown away by her story, and you know, and that she was involved in the national women's rugby team, and she understood how to build teamwork and just all this stuff, right. That made sense. Oh, teamable. It's, you know, it's a company that's going to be in the HR space and it's going to help people with social referral recruiting. And it's just like, yeah, like spending the time to find those nuggets out about her enabled me to see the opportunity in a more holistic way. And I can promise you a year and a half ago, I did not wake up and say, I want to, you know, invest in a social referral. <laughs> yeah. that, that was not, that was not, you know, it was not a top of mind for me. No, no. But if you just, you know, so I'm, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I like to invest in. Um, I have a company called, um, a company I'm on the board of, which is called, um, that's called um, Hodinky uh, in the watch space. And uh, I think it's, you know, I think it's blue bottle, you know, Redux, you know, you've got this this young mid thirties person who, you know, is you know quickly becoming you know one of the most important voices in the world in the watch space, 
And like, it's amazing, right, to see that kind of credibility and that brand authenticity um, that comes out from people like that. Um, you know, if you dig into Ben, Ben Clymer's background, you'll find out that he's, you know, such a young child, right? He's just been into watches, you know, he's he's just, you know, like I like to look at Instagram or I like to look at, you know, ESPN or, (laughs) or the political news on CNN or whatever. And, you know, Ben waking up and I think he's spending all his day just looking at watches. Um, You know, and like it's great. And what stage do you typically get involved with companies? I mean, do you look at, you know, with Laura, for example, how far along were they before you got involved? We want to be the first check in a company. Um, If we're not the first check, um, it's very unlikely that we will do. We'll be an investor in the company, and the reason why is when we're and and this is like nothing's definitive, right? There there are exceptions to that rule, but. That's probably 97, 98% of what we do. It's first check. It's a million to $2 million check um, that ends up, you know, we end up owning 20% of the company because it's at the earliest stages of the idea where there's the optimal amount of risk um, or not optimal, but the, the maximum amount of risk, but the optimal kind of risk reward relationship, if you want. So if it works, you know, we're going to do really, really well. That's the Fitbits of the world, the Pelotons of the world. Um, you know, Duo Security, which we just had a massive exit on to Cisco for two and a half billion dollars. You know, all these companies. You know, in the beginning, we own twenty to twenty to twenty-five percent um, because we're investing so early. So um, that's the stage we want. Um, it's particularly Im- important to us and to our business model, where we have an incredible. We do have a thesis you know, on our business model. And we're those hurdles, those ownership hurdles of, you know, 15 to to 25% are real for us. If we can't get that, then we're probably not the right fit. But why that's important to, I think, a set of founders or a management team and to us is that um, we have like very, you know, significant alignment, true alignment from, from day one. And we're going to be in a much better position to be the champions of their cultural DNA and their vision of what they want to do. And we're going to be much more patient um, than what most investors can do. A lot of investors come in and they're nervous, um, almost, you know, like they're, they're so excited to win the deal. But, then, you know, like a week later, it's like they have buyer's remorse or something. <laughs> you know, they, they can be a little nervous and and our job is not so much to protect, but to help, you know, everybody navigate that, those moments, those kind of moments. Um, and if we have the first check and we've been there the longest and we have, you know, significant or the most significant ownership in the company, then we're going to have a stronger voice or a more equal voice in, in helping, you know, a, helping a company kind of guide itself down the journey. I think that's that makes a lot of sense, actually. And I guess over your time, you must have had a few losses. Yes. When <laughs> a few losses, I'm sure. Um, I mean, one of the hardest things for an entrepreneur is to know when to pivot or when to like call it a day. Yes. How do you, or when have you seen someone not kind of 
know when to pivot or when to call it a day and like what was the outcome of that and i think i don't know if there was a hard and fast rule for this but is there a time when it's like okay guys this is not working you have to do this now like and when do you how do you make that call well i think it's it's not it's not our call as investors but it is our responsibility to kind of pay attention and think about is that what's happening here? And if so, then to communicate it clearly, right, to to a, a founder or founders. Um, because it's their time. For us, you know, if we have, we go back to that formula I just shared with you, let's take the high end of the, the spectrum. Let's say we invest $2 million. You know, our fund is $300 million to $350 million. You know, it's less than 1% of our fund. You know, it's 0.6 to 0.75% of our fund. It's, it's, you know, it's not meaningless, but it's not significant, right? And so for us to be able to walk away from that and focus on other things that are working, you know, it's not that it's easy, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, it's easier for sure. Right than an entrepreneur who's been toiling for a long time um, and trying to make an idea work and it's not working. They put all their you know kind of eggs in that basket, right? And so, um, and and people have uh, you know people don't want to they don't want to fail. And I mean, who wants to? I mean, really, who wants to fail, right? Um, and so, so it's hard to acknowledge it's not working because that represents failure. And we try to take that stigma away from it. We try to say it's okay to fail. Fail, fail, failing's, you know, fine. You know, it's your time and it's your passion that you can't, you know, let just kind of drift away. And so if it's not working, unless you really think you've got the fix for it, like, you know, pivot, shut it down, take the money and do something new with it or return the money and come back to us when you're ready. We've had plenty of people that have lost money with us that we've funded again, for sure, because they did it in an eloquent way, right? They, they you know, not all, ideas, not all ideas are, you know, it's not binary. You know, it's a great idea, it works, and it's a bad idea, it doesn't work. I've seen bad ideas work fine and have good, you know, outcomes, and I've seen great ideas fail. And, and you know, just go out of business and you're a little shocked, you know, (laughs) because sometimes just stuff, you just don't know all the dynamics in the market and things don't work. Yeah, no, that's good. I want to work towards wrapping up now. Um, and just ask a few rapid fire questions. Um, okay. So who or what has been your biggest inspiration? Um, it's actually, honestly, it's a collection of people. Um, you know, in each stage of my life I've had, um, I've had these guardian angels <laughs> that have just really, you know, they're not always the usual suspects, right? There was a guy, you know, when I was a when I was a, a young guy, a young kid, uh, he was a he sold cars, I think, at the car dealership. But he'd been an athlete, a local athlete, he'd, you know, been drafted professionally in baseball, but hadn't really ever done. You know, didn't really ever take the risk and really leave the town, didn't really go for it or whatever. And, you know, and he was just such a supporter of me and, 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 and really super helpful in pushing me because I think he regretted those things that he didn't do, you know. And so that's like, ah, 
it's not an active influence, but it's like, wow, what a, what a, I can see it now really clearly, the things he was trying to, trying to tell me or point me towards. Um, you know, if I fast forward to today, it's my partners. You know, the, the, the thing about true where I think we all pinch ourselves, been doing this for 12, 13 years now together. We haven't had drama. We've had incredibly, you know, uh, we've had incredible success. Our funds are top decile for sure. But the biggest success we've had is cultural. And our ability to work together as a team um, and to have joy in working together is phenomenal. Um, and I think it's, it's somewhat, it's just somewhat unprecedented in, in venture. Uh, you just, you know, we're over $2 billion, like $2.3 billion under management now. Um, you know, six core funds, three select funds. Um, and there really just has not been any drama. You know, the core team is still there. We've added people along the way. Uh, yeah, I see Kevin Rose is with you guys now. Yeah, Kevin's with us. Uh, Amy Errett's with us. Ann Crady is with us. Uh, you know, Adam uh, Dogali joined us. Um, you know, right out of right out of school, and is now a partner. He did the ring deal. <laughs> the um, ring deal is always close. Yeah, you know, I mean, amazing uh, for us. You know, sold for over one point two billion dollars to Amazon. You know, we own over twenty percent. You know, of, <laughs> of that. Um, you know, like you got O'Malley, you got Rohit, Panit. Uh, you know, Tony and myself and John and Phil are still there. You know, it's like, wow. Please. It's it's just, you know, I hope I didn't miss anyone, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I think I just oh my gosh. Yeah, and we have and we have new people, Priscilla and Natasha, who've come on board and like we just yeah, like it's just, it's just yeah, it's really it's really, it's really been empowering. And so I think that's my it's a very long answer to your rapid fire question. Yeah, we're on we're on question number one still. <laughs> <laughs> slow, slow, rapid, slow, rapid. It's fine. Okay, what's your what's your favorite podcast? Oh, uh, easily. Uh, there's two of them actually. <laughs> the Tim Ferriss show. Um, Tim's a good friend, and I just love the way Tim thinks. Um, and the Kevin Rose show because yeah, Kevin's just like he's my best buddy out there, and. Um, I just another one who just it just both of them just think in such a fresh way. It's amazing. Tim Ferriss, actually, he's he is the reason why I'm in New York. <laughs> yeah, oh, good. <laughs> I work week. I was I was over it. I was out. <laughs> good. So, favorite blog um, would be uh, Matt Mullenweg's blog or O'Malley's blog. Um, Matt is uh, M A dot T T, and Ohms is om.co um they've obviously both been doing it for a long 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 time uh been doing it together in a lot of ways for a long 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 time so those are my two favorites uh favorite book uh shackleton's journey as englishman you should know this story it's about the discovery of the social uh, the south pole and um it's a it's a ship that got stuck in an ice um like an ice pack and it drifted for almost almost two years. Wow! Is yeah. it, and it's a true story, or is it fiction? True, no, true story. True story. It's one of the great survival stories of all time. To check that out. Um, favorite Instagram account? 
Uh, oh my goodness, probably blue, probably blue bottle coffee, or I like ninety eight Turk, which is a mixology. I like looking at the cocktails, it look cool. Um, but I'm I'm really susceptible to to like the the coffee, uh, the coffee glamour shots. Nice, yeah. No, I noticed that as well. You got a really nice you know, aesthetic going on your Instagram feed. You got some good pictures there. I mean, I actually came across you on Kevin Rose's Instagram. Uh-huh. And that's when I was like, oh, who's this guy? And then I went through, I was like, wow, his pictures are great. <laughs> I was like, wow, maybe he's trying to become an influencer. I don't know. I used to always say that to Kevin's sister in the beginning. When I, the, like the, when I would see him once a year, I'd say, hey, you know, my photos are really great. <laughs> impressive to be honest um cool cool. um what do you wish you could do that you can't do Uh, uh, surf i mean i have surfed but i really wish i could surf (laughs) there's still time there's still time um what advice would you give to your 21 year old self be generous Mm. to others or to yourself to everyone to everyone if you had a hundred dollars in your favorite city what would you spend it on i'm too old to have one favorite city <laughs> and i hope i'm too old to have only a hundred dollars but uh if i were in paris i'd go to a museum i'd go on an architecture tour uh if i was in tokyo i'd go out for coffee and i'd go out for coffee again and then i'd you know do some mixology <laughs> Uh, you're a big whiskey fan, aren't you? I think I, I saw that as well. I, I do. I do like whiskey. I'll have, uh, I probably have like one whiskey every weekend, like one, you know, like one little shot. So I don't drink too much of it. I say that. And and last night I hosted a, a, a dinner and event where, you know, we we're having fun and we're, and we're trying all kinds of different spirits, but obviously whiskey was, was, was in the mix. Yeah. Have you tasted Dalwini? Dalwini 17 year? I, I have not. Very good, Ruski. All right. Um, oh, and what's the one things startups should ignore in the early days? Oh, fake hype. Fake hype. Yeah. What's fake hype? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, I think Evan Williams wrote a great, great post. Um, you know, founder of Blogger, founder of Twitter, now founder of Medium. And I really appreciated something he wrote a few years back about measuring the right things. And so like, I think he, like all of us, you know, like anybody who sold, who is, who has started a company that feels like it's on the social infrastructure of the web. Um, you, you know, you get caught up in these number of opens and how active and engaged your users are and all this stuff that we're, you know, maybe kind of complaining about. Right. Um, and, in the case of medium, that's not what was important in the case of medium. It was, did you read the article? And I remember him saying like, we're not going to chase these fake, you know, metrics this fake hype, you know, any, anymore. We're just going to like define our own metrics of what we think is valuable and what really constitutes real engagement, you know, from our platform of users. And I think that's something as a, as a founder yet, you got to avoid the traps, you know, like we, we went down that trap. We found, we got ourselves into that trap in about.me in the early days where we started putting social mechanisms around what we were doing and really honestly got away from like the core, you know, vision of what we had for the product. And hence that's why we brought Jeff Fien in and we reset it, you know, three or four years ago and happily so. 
Yeah, no, that, that's that's good. It's so hard sometimes to not get caught up in that hype. Um, I've seen many startups fall into that that problem, but um, no, I totally agree. And I guess my final question is: What is the vision you have for True Ventures? And I guess the rest the rest of your life, really. I mean, you've done so much. <laughs> I mean, you've done so much. I mean, not to say that you know it's over, but I mean, like. You've done so much already. I think. Do you have another startup in you? You think? No. I well, if I do have another startup in me, it'll be like a scarf company or something. You know, <laughs> that makes total doesn't make any sense at all. But like, I if you if you if if you meet me, I'm most likely be wearing a scarf. So I do like scarves. Um, <laughs> something like that. But you know, the vision for True Ventures is really you know it's a shared vision um, amongst you know, our team, but it's, it's really kind of was set by John and Phil in the early days when they were founding Drew. And, uh, um, I think, you know, this vision to create for us as investors and people that are going to be on the team to create a mechanism that allowed each of us to invest the way that we know how to invest. Um, so, you know, I'm a non-thesis investor, other people on the team, <clears throat> sorry, I'm not choked up over that. <laughs> I've just been talking for a while, but I'm a non-thesis investor, but other people on the team, uh, may be very thesis driven, right? You know, digital biology or crypto or SAS or whatever it is. And we've just created a platform where our thesis is around a business model concept and it's around empathy and emotional intelligence as the way it relates to the founders that we work with. And it's not about like, oh, here's the cookie cutter approach that you need to, to follow as the lead investor, right? So each one of us in the platform is really set up to, to excel and, and to do things that feel natural to us. Um, and so that's just John and Phil, 100%. Um, you know, I, I've just been lucky to be along for the ride and, and to be a good, I've been a I've been more than long for the ride, as you know, like I've been a core contributor, but, but they really have set that, that tone for us uh, from day one and it has served us incredibly well. That's awesome. Tony, it's been awesome having you on the show. Where can people find you if, I guess, if you want to be found? (laughs) (laughs) On Twitter, uh, my handle is Tony Sphere. Uh, so that's T-O-N-Y-S-P-H-E-R-E. And on Instagram, even though I have a private account, but if you want to follow me, just make a request. And if you look like a normal person, I'll 99% approve you for sure. But uh, my Instagram is uh, just Tony Conrad. And um, those are probably the two best places. And then my about.me page, if you want to learn more about me, uh, it's just about.me slash Tony Conrad. Awesome. Tony, thank you so much for coming on. All right. Listen, thank you for having me. I just want to say another huge thank you to Tony and the True Ventures team for making this interview happen. Thank you so much, guys. This is definitely going to go down as, as a classic. There was so much depth in that interview. I don't know about you guys, but it's almost impossible to just narrow down some of the most important points or the most salient points from that interview. 
One thing that did stand out to me was Tony's views on doing more than one thing. Now, this does go against conventional wisdom, but I do agree it is just a case of how you manage your time and how good the team is that you build around you. We can all do more than one thing. If you think about it, you probably do more than one thing now, whether it be your business, whether it be your podcast, whether it be school, whether it be your full-time job and then your side hustle. We all do more than one thing and we can be super effective at doing that. It's just a case of being strict and focused with the time. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a review on the Apple Podcasting app or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. All right. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.